Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Ooh, is that pod on? Welcome to Next Big Hits, Broadway Bullet. This is Volume 20. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we've got a lot of great stuff for you in this episode. We're going to be talking with a couple of people involved with the play Angry Young Women. We're going to be talking to uh, cabaret and jazz performer Marcus Goldhaber and hearing a live song from them in the studio. We're going to be talking to Heather Cousins in our continuing Going Geeky on Spring Awakening series. And we got a song from Spelling Bee, and we've got a very special part one of a director's panel featuring four outstanding up-and-coming directors talking all about the career. Let me preface this episode by saying I am cutting this as well as volume 21 the day after I did volume 19 to get stuff done in advance as I'm going on vacation for two weeks. So I am out of date. I don't know what closed. I don't know how many people of you have responded to the survey yet, though please go to broadwaybullet.com and fill out the survey. We have had a couple people already get to it in the first day. I greatly appreciate that. The responses are incredibly valuable, and I need each and every one of you to take a few minutes and fill it out. I assure you, each question I ask gives me good information for putting together the show in the future. Make sure you go to broadwaybullet.com and click on our forum link for the Spring Awakening contest for the complete list of all the Going Geeky questions and where you can email your answers because, yes, the time is due. And the first 10 people with the correct answers will receive a pair of tickets and a meet and greet with the cast and crew afterwards. We're still setting the date, so make sure you include your phone number in that email so we can contact you to verify that you'll be able to make it. All right, well, let's jump right into the program with our first interview. A collection of five one-acts dealing with women is opening January 4th, and we've got three of the people involved with the show called, what else, Angry Young Women here with us. You guys want to take a moment to introduce yourselves? Sure. I'm Matt Marillo, writer, director, and co-producer of Angry Young Women and Low-Rise Jeans with High Class Issues. I'm Jessica Durdock, producer of Angry Young Women and Low-Rise Jeans with High Class Issues. <laughs> and I am Rachel Now. I am one of the stars of the show of Angry Young Women and Low-Rise Jeans with High Class Issues. <laughs> well, first off, I guess part of the discussion that has to be come up in conversation a lot is the fact that um, Matt seems to be missing a couple pieces of anatomy for one... <laughs> What would be typically associated with writing a play like this? True. <laughs> well, I don't know Matt well enough to confirm or deny that. But, um, <laughs> but it's true. As someone, I acted in the plays last year when they were at the Duo Theater, and now I switched to producing. So I know it from both sides. And one of the comments that we get from people after the show is, a guy wrote this? This, this is what I feel. My, my boyfriend says this stuff is, is how I act, and it's just so spot-on and accurate uh, for, for women as a women's perspective. You see people constantly um, outside discussing the situations that happen during the show. The girls are like, I really didn't act like that, did I? The boys like, uh, not sure whether to say yes or no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So does the question, do I look fat in these jeans, come up in the show? Uh, actually. Kind of, kind of, kind of, it kind of does in one of the sketches. It, yeah, there's... 
there, there's something a moment similar to that does happen yeah yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> but she gets right to the point with does mm. my butt look big yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean essentially the the five pieces deal um, uh, this five piece the first one's called my last thong which is a monologue about a girl who uh, swears she's never going to wear another thong because she's tired of the constantly diminishing size of women's fashions and how they're out of control. Mm-hmm. And it's a whole rant on feminism's lost ideals and whatnot. The second piece is Playtime in the Park, which is about the difference between men's sexual fantasies and women's. And the third piece is called Unprotected Sex, which is about the effects of the birth control pill on a woman's mood swings and how her boyfriend and his buddy deal with it. The fourth piece is The Miseducation of Alyssa, another comedic monologue about a girl who's convinced that her loving, doting father ruined her forever because he told her to trust men and she's done nothing but get hurt by them. And the fifth piece is The Nude Scene, which is about a girl who is about to do her first topless scene in a film and she realizes she doesn't want to do it. And the whole piece is really a, a statement on the double standard of nudity in films. So, Matt, what inspired you to write these um, just different situations. Um, I, I used to work, most of my friends, it just happened to be women. It just happens to work out that way. Lucky guy. Yeah. <laughs> and when, for years when I was younger, I managed a, a DVD store, and most of my employees were women. And, you know, the store eventually went out of business, so as you can imagine, we had tons of free time, and we would get to, you work 12-hour shifts with people, just sitting around doing nothing. You talk about everything. And a lot of the things these girls would gripe about, about their, the world and the way the world sees them is stuff that I would, it made me laugh. And I wrote it into this kind of set of, of shows, really. Except for Unprotected. Unprotected is actually based on, on an event. That's the, the birth control scene. I went on a drive with a friend of mine and her boyfriend a few years ago. And she would, had just gone on the pill, and the whole two-hour car ride was an absolute nightmare. Because <laughs> her, her, she, she, all she did, no matter what we said or what we did, she just would get upset. It could, it, we were being too nice or we were being mean. It just didn't matter, and I just wrote it into this piece. What's the process like uh, as actors? Well, I guess you, you used to act in the show. Yeah. From an acting perspective, is, how close home does this hit? How, do, how weird does it feel? It's funny, because we had our first rehearsal, um, I guess, last week. Yeah. And last time I would read the, the plays out loud at the rehearsal, this time I was hearing them. And I noticed that there was very little you had to do in terms of acting with these. These are real people. The script is written so well and so clearly. There's no fluff. Matt's not trying to hide anything. There's no hidden agenda. It's all right there. And you just sort of have to open up your imagination into it, accept these situations as real life, real time, now situations. And as long as you can do that and you understand what you're saying, uh, there's very little you have to do, which leaves so much room to have fun, to play, to improv, to experiment, to, to, to be open with the other actors. So it was fun to watch that. It was fun to do it last year. Now it's fun to see it happen. For me... This experience is actually kind of surreal because going from being a teenage girl and kind of going through everything that's happening in this show. I mean, every single girl's had either the experience of being on birth control pills, wearing their first thong, or like feeling uncomfortable, or feeling uncomfortable with wearing like little short skirts, or dealing with guys, the whole sexual situations, and and how you kind of come into your own and kind of decide what's right for you and what's not right for you. And so every girl can kind of relate to each different piece on a different level. And so for me, reading the script, I felt comfortable and at home that this was actually the real truth. And I think behind the real truth, you find how absurd some of the stuff is that goes on. And it's so much fun. It's just (laughs) a blast to be a part of. Mm I think that that's the key is the fun of it all. I think, you know, when I was coming up through this business and all that and a lot, become friends with a lot of actors, I would go see a lot of their shows. 
and the shows were just always just if just downright pretentious and boring and awful. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I would always see my friends, and they would always be good. And I would say, God, you're wasting your talent in this pretentious garbage. And I wanted to come in and make a play that was just fun. I mean, mm-hmm. our slogan for the show is, even though it's a play, it doesn't suck. Because I think there's a lot of people out there who believe that all these plays, that just every play, they just try so hard to be deep. and Messages, and, messages. Oh, Everyone and, has a you message. Know, you know, I hate this. <laughs> you know, know this, know that. And, and we're just here to have fun and really put a mirror up yeah. to re- something we all deal with is relationships. So yeah. all the absurdity of it all. So. Well, and it's also kind of nice seeing it in action and knowing as a female... Um, especially like the young 20-somethings and they're just coming into their own and they see it and they're like, oh, so I wasn't insane. This does happen to other people. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Yeah. You know, like I'm not crazy. And it's for, okay. And for the guys, you know, I don't. I hope this play doesn't scare away yeah. guys because it is women's issues. This is the perfect play for guys to come either with or without their girlfriends, have a beer or two beforehand, come in, watch yourself in the mirror that we're putting up there, have fun, laugh, and go out afterwards, have two more beers and laugh even more about what you saw and what actually goes on with women. Because it, I mean, it is funny, it is entertaining, and the more you talk about it, the more you open it up, the more you can sort of enjoy this crazy roller coaster we're on together, you know, guys and girls. That is true. I had a huge group of guy friends that came and saw the show last year, and they said they never laughed so hard in their <laughs> life. And they, they were like, wow. They're like, I had no idea what that show was going to be like, but it was so amazing. They're like, I laughed myself out of the seat. They're like, we're definitely going to come see it again. And they did, <laughs> as a group, again, yeah. because it's so much fun as a group to go see this show and just kind of relate to each other. Yeah, and I think that guys, I mean, women see it the way you had expressed, that, that, oh, my God, this isn't, this is me, this is what it's like, I'm not alone. But I think guys, in a lot of respects, where it really gets over with guys is that guys see this as hot chicks talking dirty. Because <laughs> <laughs> so, the, the women in the show are just absolutely beautiful. And yeah. the, the language is... Yeah, go to the website and look yeah, at the cast. They're yeah. so beautiful, these girls. The, the language <laughs> is... is uh, is pretty. I mean, the show is not for kids. The, the language is as raw as it gets. And one critic called it "Sex in the City" on stage, and there's a reason for that. Yeah. It's girls talking the way girls talk, so it's it's pretty raunchy. And we really do talk like this. I, it's not an exaggeration at all. I second that. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're the ones I learned it from. So. In fact, some of the dirtiest lines have come through improvs, and mm-hmm. yeah. I think we can both take credit for a couple of those nasty, nasty things. <laughs> But yeah, if you're looking to have a good time, this is it's an hour and a half show. You come down, you'll 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 laugh for for 90 minutes, and you'll have something to talk about at the diner after or the bar or whatever. Yeah, that I can promise you. <laughs> Definitely. Now, Jessica has. Uh the transition from actress in the show to producer been an odd one at all? Do you ever get wishing you were up on stage there or trying it, to... It's funny. Matt wrote this piece, and I've been with Matt from the beginning of when he first started developing the, the five pieces. And um, we did it once three years ago at a very small theater just to sort of workshop it, get it out. It was a full production that wasn't just a workshop. And that was sort of my first taste of, of dealing with this kind of writing in this sort of format. And then we did it again last year. And, you know, coming into it again, I thought I could offer more if I were now, after having experienced a full run, two full runs, to sort of come backstage and tweak from behind. Matt is one of my best friends. We've been working together creatively for many years now, and I'm not just in it to to have the glory, get the, get the applause, get the curtain call, get the review. We're building something together here, and 
He has his other partner, Rich, that he produced, Rich Barbadillo, who, that he produces films with. So he's got that whole other thing. And, and the three of us, and now as we bring other people up into the company, like Rachel, like the other cast members, Tom and Devin, everybody, we're all interested in creating something big together. Mm. So the fact that I get to now be a producer is helping me sort of tweak my own skills so that I can contribute more to this company because more and more exciting stuff happens on Matt, for Matt on the film front and the theater front every day. And I just want to be prepared to, to contribute all I can to that. So it's exciting for me to be a producer. Now it's exciting for me to have her as a producer because my background is in film. I met Jessica when I was in college doing student films, and she was in one of the student films I produced when I was in college. And my background is really in film. I kind of moved into theater almost by accident. And I'm, I really want to move back into film. Um, and I know I'm trained in film. That's my first love, and that's what I'm good at. I don't really know much about theater. I just know I can write and direct a funny piece. So to have Jessica jump to my side is almost like a lifesaver here. Mm -hmm. To have her who she's been acting in plays since she was a little girl, so she knows everything about theater. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, last year when we were doing the show and Jessica was acting in it, there were a couple of moments where nothing big, but we butted heads a little because I didn't do something. She's like, you got to do that. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know anything about theater. <laughs> I'm like, you know, put me on a movie set. I'll tell you what to do, you know. But, but, uh, yeah. So now I've, I've sort of jumped on as the sort of control freak nitpicker. And uh, I kind of am mm. the little person yeah. standing behind Matt saying, no, do it this way. Yeah. No, make it like this. And it's, so. a, it's a huge help because it allows yeah. me to concentrate on the product on stage. Yeah. And the show will be ten times better this time than it was last year. And last year, we did pretty damn good with it. Mm -hmm. You know, we got great reviews and got picked up by Theater for the New City. And that's why we're here right now. So. And since I have this opportunity to show Matt sort of how I personally like theater done, and now he's showing me how he likes theater done, it's just helping our company. So the next time Matt writes a piece and I'm in it, we're on the same page creatively again. And we just can keep getting better and better, communicating more and more and collaborating. Mm. Matt's a big collaborator. He, his yeah. door is always open, and that's why his pieces flourish, because everyone has a say. Everyone contributes. So uh, what dates is this playing, and where is it at? We open January 4th, um, and we run through February 11th. We run Thursdays through Saturdays at 8 p.m. and Sundays at 3 p.m. at the Theater for the New City in the East Village. The address is 155 First Avenue. It's between 9th and 10th Street. The website is angryyoungwomen.net. You can find a link there to buy tickets. The tickets are sold through SmartTix. Opening weekend, we're having a special. If you come to any of the shows opening weekend, the tickets are only $12. You have to use the discount code OPEN. However, the Theater for the New City will be running a special, the entire run of our show. Sunday's shows are pay what you can, but that promotion is only available at the door. All right. Well, I thank you guys for coming down as you get ready to open for <laughs> your show. Through the holiday season must be a tough time to be re <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> rehearsing. And wish you the best of luck. Thank and, you. Uh, thank thank you. you. Oh, it pains me to listen to my voice. I recorded that interview with them the day after I quit smoking, and my uh, I was kind of nicking out. But I have to say, I am still not smoking after going to see The Mad Russian. And uh, I've had, you know, the, I went through all the withdrawal, but I never had a craving for a cigarette. And I've uh, been drinking, hanging out with people who smoke, no urge. It's kind of amazing. Anyway, let's get on to our next feature. This next interview and performance was originally featured on another Next Big Hit program, Minox Music Mix. But we felt that uh, it was something that you guys would enjoy, too, and give Marcus Goldhaber a little bit more exposure. All right, this is Minox, and I'm here with Marcus Goldhaber, and he is a New York City jazz musician. Thank you for being here. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. 
And I recently saw Marcus Goldhaber perform with his quartet. He has a new CD out called The Moment After, and the performance was in the Lower East Side at a really cool place called the Backroom Bar. You have to walk through this kind of, what is it like? Can you describe what it's sure. like? Sure. It's a, it's a redesigned 1920s speakeasy. And so uh, the front company is the Lower East Side Toy Company. And what you do is you enter on in off the street on Norfolk Street, and you, you walk through a metal gate with no signs on it, but a white poster board that says Lower East Side Toy Company, and there's vintage toys in the window, and you walk in between two buildings, and you think you're in a back alleyway a la Hernando's Hideaway, or and you uh, knock on a metal door, and then the door opens up, and you're in this beautiful library-esque feel, very classy room, split level, um, Victorian furniture everywhere, and... Uh, it's a real beautiful place. Very homey, cozy. Yeah, it was a great show, and Marcus has a collection of 1930s and 1940s jazz standards on this new CD, The Moment After. I wanted to first know a little bit about some of your favorite places in the city to perform. I know that you have, currently, you have a regular residence as a performer at the Downstairs Lounge at Penang on Sunday nights at 7.30 p.m. People can go there any Sunday night. Where, where are some of the other places that you've performed? Um, among my favorites, uh, I would say that one of the one of the greatest rooms uh, in town would be at the Carnegie Club over on 56th Street. Um, I had a chance to sit in there a bunch of times with a great horn player named Mark Rapp, and who I play with from time to time, and he's there with his quartet every Friday night. I love playing at this uh, this place I got coming up next week, this Manhattan Lounge. It's a, real, it's a new room. It's got a real great feel. It's attracting a lot of great talent. It's coming down and performing in it. It's a great space right across from CBGB's. And so, and, and I've also gotten really, uh, it's, they've been, uh, it's been a nice home over at Penang in the downstairs room there. So I've played around the city at other places too, Lennox Lounge and um, also at the Friars Club and, you know, a bunch of nice spots. A lot of places to catch Marcus Goldhaber. So I understand you started out after college as an actor, and can you just talk a little bit about some of your work on stage, some of these performances? Sure. I graduated in 2000 uh, from uh, SUNY Fredonia and moved out here and started about midway through college, actually working in, uh, in theater in the regional circuit. Um, came out here, worked on the off-Broadway level at a bunch of different um, plays and, and musicals as well, uh, most recently for the, the Jean Cocteau Theatre Company down Lower East Side, also at the Henry Street Settlement. Um, a wonderful piece um, by Kamal Sinclair Steele called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. And those are probably two of my favorites. And then I slowly began to transition more into the jazz world. I would be doing the shows at night, and then after the shows I'd go out and sing in at the, any jams that were around town. Then finally decided it's what I wanted to put more of my focus on and, uh, and give, it a, give it a good push. Two of your songs that I that just blow me away every time I listen to them are Like Someone in Love, which I believe was penned by Jimmy Van Heusen and uh, Johnny Burke, and Gonna Sit Down and Write Myself a Letter by Joe Young and Fred Allert. Were the pronunciations on? Yeah, yeah, yeah right on. They'd be happy. Yeah. Um, those are two special tunes uh, for me as well. I mean, all these tunes are special because it's, you know, these are all tunes that uh, I just grew up listening to. Uh, these were tunes that were always playing um, in the house. My mom's a piano player. She was always just playing a, a standard here and there from the 20s, 30s, and 40s. You know, it would always kind of pull me over and make sure I, uh, I knew the tune she was playing. And my grandfather, too, and grandmother were playing likewise when my mom was growing up. So it's, it's become, you know, from one, 
one generation to the next. Very cyclical for me. And uh, so every time I'm, I you know learn a new tune even today, which still happens from my mom calling me up. You know, here's another one. Here's another one. And it was more of a, a genre that she was passing on. And um, and I'm just I'm so glad she did because I'm totally in love. <laughs> <laughs> and what's some of the music that you grew up listening to that your parents kind of passed on to you? And who are some of the influences that have driven you to record your own material? My influence in this genre was definitely headed by my, you know, by my mom and all these tunes that she was playing after dinner usually. But uh, I listened to a lot of other musicians too. I was really into Jim Morrison. I was really into The Grateful Dead. I was into Moxie Fruvis. And, um, but in the jazz world, I, I, was, I met, listened a lot to Dexter Gordon, Sonny Rollins, Chet Baker, Sarah Vaughn, Peggy Lee. Those were the, at the forefronts for me. Did we mention where people can purchase your music and where they can get The Moment After? Well, they can get The Moment After on CD Baby. They can get The Moment After on iTunes. And uh, they can also order the album on my website. Now, here's the thing. If you order it from my website at marcusgoldhaber.com, you're ordering through PayPal. So you just get yourself equipped with a PayPal account. And you get the album for $2 extra. And you get it autographed. And that $2 donation goes to support Friends Indeed. Friends Indeed is an organization that's uh, an office downtown in Union Square area. And they're dedicated to uh, helping folks who are living with uh, life-threatening diseases. And so $2 off every album purchased off my website will, uh, will go to benefit Friends Indeed. And we have a Next Big Hit and Minox Music Mix exclusive because... Marcus Goldhaber is here with his bass player, Paul Gabrielson, and John Davis, who's on the keys. And they have just penned a song that is going to be performed for the first time in the Next Big Hit studio. And the title of it is If We Can't Grab It Now. Yeah, this is a, this is a fun little surprise that just came out just a couple of minutes ago, I guess. When faced with certain licensing restrictions and you're not being able to uh, perform certain unoriginal material on certain broadcasts. Uh, you know, when asked to write a tune, we just uh, sort of sat down and, and uh, you, know, you close your eyes, you see what comes out. So, came up with a nice little blues. Here's a taste. Lot of tragedy. Oh man, I can't stand to see. So much tragedy. But I just can't stand to see. What up made me feel. Like I don't wanna be no not in day. Oh brother, if we don't grab it now, maybe we just don't know how. So many hungry souls about to lose control. So die by from so many about to lose control Man, this really is time to be bold If we don't grab it now Man, we just don't know change Say I ain't saying no one's to blame but no better it's up to you 
up to me But somehow we still can't see The way things gotta be If we don't grab it now Then we just don't know This tragedy makes me feel like I don't want to be Oh, I can't stand to see all those hungry souls Bound to lose control Really, it is time to be bold I'll name it names, but it's time to make a change Said now, if we don't Grab it now We don't know how We just don't know how Take a look at your baby
And yes, to the credit, that was recorded live in one take here in our studios. And if any of you are looking to get any recordings done, I don't do long-term projects, but I do do these short-term projects. And if you're great and live and you can work fast, uh, want to perform live, I have a special three songs for $75. You'll get them mixed and mastered and back right away. So you can find out more at copperheads.com. And... That is Copperheads with a Z. And that $75 special is actually $25 off a regular website price. Just make sure you say you heard it on Broadway Bullet. In his 25 years working in the heart of Broadway at the Colony, Marty Cooper has seen just about everything, met just about everybody, and he likes about everything. That is why we call his weekly segment On the Positive Side. Hey, once again, this is Marty Cooper on the Positive Side. As New Year's approaches, I feel I should make some... New Year's resolutions, but I I never do because I never keep them. Weight, whatever, eating, how I'm going to eat, how I'm going to act, how I'm going to treat my wife. I never follow up, so I don't make them. But I have some New Year's resolutions for some of our beloved critics. My first is for Channel One. I know a lot of people watch Channel One. First of all, it's convenient. You get that little square with the time and the temperature. But they have a critic, Romatori, who is probably a sweetheart, but I don't think she should be reviewing theater. There's no passion. She doesn't really get too excited or too negative about anything. She'll either say, well, this wasn't quite that good, and that was better, and it's all very lethargic, in my opinion. I don't pick up my head when I hear her reviews. I don't say hey, I think she's wrong, or I don't think anything, which is really sad. There's nothing worse than boring. So NY1, make a New Year's resolution to hire a theater critic with passion. My second critic of choice I've spoken about before, it's Michael Riedel. I happen to know Michael. I've spoken to him many times. He's really a sweet guy. We get into long conversations. A lot of times we agree on stuff. A lot of times we disagree on stuff. But as I've been saying all along, running things out of town is not the way to go. I love that show, fine. I hated that show, fine. When you say it, finish it and press on. Don't refer to it week after week, hoping it'll leave. My New Year's resolution for you is go to a therapist and find out why you hold the garage, get rid of your demons, and maybe it would help if you got a mate that you can enjoy things with. I've been talking about resolutions for critics. What I feel in general is that critics need sometimes a case of goosebumps. They need a case of red velvet-itis. I gotta say, you put me in a red velvet seat and nothing that's been bothering me bothers me anymore. And I feel that critics should be a little more like that, get a little more excited about the work they do. I have another mention. There is one guy that I agree with almost all of the time, me being a positive person and loving Broadway. It's Clive Bonds of The Post. My only thought is, you seem to like shows most of the time. Very rarely do I read a bad review from you. It would be hard to tell which is really great and which you just happen to like. So my New Year's resolution for you, Mr. Bonds, is this hurts me a lot because I'm not like this, but go to Fight Club and undo all of those anger management classes and hate something for a change. 
This is my last resolution. It's for Ben Brantley. I had kind of a difficult childhood. I had to find joy on my own, but I'm not going to trouble anybody with that. I had to find my own joy, find friends, find things to play with. But Mr. Brantley, after reading your, especially your Mary Poppins review, you didn't have a childhood, any kind of childhood. It's time to grow down a little bit and find that child within you and stop reviewing things like their scientific works. It's only entertainment. You need not analyze everything. We don't need an analysis of something like Mary Poppins. So my New Year's resolution to you, Mr. Brantley, is to go to Disney World and lock yourself in It's a Small World ride for two weeks and you will find the child within you, I'm sure. I said that Ben Brantley was my last, but I lied. I just thought of John Simon. We don't hear much of him anymore, and probably for good reason. His attack of people's looks and the way they acted, rather than criticizing what they did for a show or for a drama. Very honestly, I look like John Simon, and I probably don't look as good as he does. I wouldn't go around criticizing people's looks. Just review a show and don't personally attack people. So, Mr. Simon, my New Year's resolution for you is to spend two weeks in a fat farm in the Ozarks, where people are really ugly. Everyone will look good to you from then on. Or spend an evening at a Willie Nelson concert. So once again, until next week, although I've been pretty negative, this is Marty Cooper on the positive side. On the Positive Side is brought to you by The Colony. Online at colonymusic.com or in the heart of Broadway at 49th and Broadway. You can always say, I found it at The Colony. We are wrapping up our series, Going Geeky, on Spring Awakening with the fifth part of our series. And we have Heather Cousins here with us, the stage manager for Spring Awakening. How are you doing? Good, thanks. And I'm wondering how you got into stage managing. Well, I knew pretty early on that I didn't want to be an actor. That's not where my talents lie. But I knew I was kind of interested in a lot of the different elements of theater. So, you know, you take some design classes, you take some, you try and work with some casting people. And then uh, I was, I remember in college, I was on some casting board for something and they needed an assistant stage manager and, you know little newbie sitting on the casting board they offered it to me and I had no idea what it meant and so of course I'm the kind of person who likes to try new things so I said oh, sure I'd love to and lo and behold it actually uses all of my skills well it's like the only job I've ever heard of who that actually lets me use a number of different skill sets so I don't get bored really ever what exactly <laughs> does a stage manager do for those people who haven't uh have Ever. the pleasure of working on the show. It's very difficult to explain. But generally, I think of us as the hub of the information wheel. So all of the information when we're in rehearsal that comes into the rehearsal room comes through us, and all of the information that's originated in the rehearsal room, we then disseminate that information to the different designers. And it can be from the tiniest thing. Oh, they're now doing this piece of choreography. Well, that means we have to tell the person who's designing the wigs and the hair and the costume. And are they going to be able to, what kind of shoes will they need to be able to wear? And well, is that part of the floor reinforced to be able to handle that? So everything that happens in the rehearsal room, oh, all of a sudden they need this prop. Well, you need to go tell the people who are going to build that prop. And then, and then you need to tell the costume designer so they can make sure that that costume has a pocket and then all those things. So I take it this isn't a career for the disorganized? No. <laughs> <laughs>
I mean, you could try, but it's now, an what honor. are some of the shows that you've worked on? I was uh, one of the original stage managers on Titanic. That's a show that went through a lot of changes. Of course, I was very young back then, and I didn't quite know enough to be scared, uh, so I just jumped right in. I worked on Proof for a while. I've worked consistently. I worked on Night Mother with Michael. That's actually how uh, we met. What advice would you offer for somebody trying to break in and get their first job stage managing in New York? Get a good liberal arts education, is what I say. I mean, there's lots of training programs you can go to to learn the skills, but the skills can be learned. It's all of the other. It's knowing, training your mind how to integrate a lot of different ways of thinking. Um, And every show is going to have different things that need to be organized. And then I would say you be a production assistant and send your resume in to general managers and stage managers and say, I'd love to be a production assistant on whatever show is coming up. Read the theatrical index and mm-hmm. find out what's coming up and get yourself on that. Because we're always looking for young people to come and help in the office. Well, let's move on to Spring Awakening here. The exciting thing about this show is that there were so many people who had never worked on Broadway before. And lots of people who had never done a musical before, both in the cast, but also in the creative team. So a lot of it was uh, helping people to learn how to fit into the system, because there is a machinery of how you put a musical together, but also not needing them to fit into this actual slot of how everything has ever been done in the past, because the show is so different and unusual and... uh, and it would not have served this process to make people do it the way it had always been done before. I have to say, on a normal show, the thing that's unique about the show is that all the things you normally fix backstage, like mics go out or someone sweats in their mic or someone loses a button or things that just happen because it's live theater and that's what makes it interesting. Someone gets a coughing fit, those kind of things that you normally handle off stage because all of the actors stay on stage the entire, almost the entire time. We've had to learn how to deal with those, finding the kind of solutions that we can implement really in front of the patrons without them noticing very much. And which kinds of things we can fix. Any and, specific examples? And when we can pull them off stage. In Totally Fucked, once Johnny B. Wright's mic handheld went out, and because he then takes that handheld into the next scene, and he doesn't leave the stage, and neither does his scene partner, and they go right into the vineyard scene, and they both use that handheld to sing into for the Word of Your Body reprise, uh, we had to figure out a way to, in the transition... And these transitions are so kind of tight and choreographed that it's hard to if to know every ele- how every element interlaces. We were able to walk out and hand him a handheld. And, you know, the actors have learned to completely trust the stage manager. You've been doing this long enough that probably you've seen more computerized technology take over in some of these lighting and sound situations. Mm-hmm. Has that changed the calling of cues? Yeah, well, moving lights, you call a little a, a hair earlier because it takes the the instrument just a hair longer actually gear up to move to follow somebody so whereas you used to call some uh, you know if someone's making a cross across stage you used if it's a conventional light you call it as they take the first step with a moving light you have to anticipate it a little bit so the actor really has to do it the same way every time (laughs) you call it as they start to lean towards the first step Well, let's do our final geeky questions so people can anxiously answer these and win their tickets to the show. So geeky question number nine in the series. How many guitars are played on stage every night? This is kind of a tricky question because 
we have our lead guitarist who plays six guitars, and then we have one of our other musicians plays two more guitars, and then our bass player plays yet a ninth guitar. So nine altogether. All right. Geeky question number 10. What was the first show you stage managed and where? The first show I stage managed was a production of West Side Story in college. It was actually, we were reopening the big proscenium theater. And so it was one of the bigger shows that we did while I was at school there. Did you say where you went to school? Uh, I went to Brown. Okay. It was a little unusual because it was a special event in the school. So every kind of time we had a issue, they just threw more money at it, which is very unusual. Usually you have to work within a budget. And so my first experience was that, oh, if we have a problem, you just go to the, the people who deal with the budget and then they just make the budget bigger. That doesn't normally happen. I'm so glad you could come down and speak to us about Spring Awakening and stage managing, Heather. Well, thanks for having me. All right. If you want to win tickets, you know what to do. Head to broadwaybullet.com. In our main block, just right below the new episode link, we have a link for Spring Awakening contest tickets and meet and greet. Click on that, and it'll take you to our forum thread where we have all the questions listed and where you need to email your answers and directions. You'll need to include your phone number and stuff so we can verify you'll be able to attend. But you don't have to be from New York to win. Uh, We're still solidifying the date of the show. It will be near the end of January, which is another reason we need the phone number so we can make sure to notify everybody as to the specific dates. I believe Shikaboom Records is still doing their holiday special, or at least it might go I'm guessing at least through the first. So we're going to play a track from the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, which is on Shikaboom. Remember, their CDs are on sale for $12.99, including shipping. At least I think they still are. As I said, I'm cutting this in advance. And this song is called My Unfortunate Erection. It is tradition that the person eliminated from the competition is fair game for derision. Especially the alpha male Who will sell goodies at the bake sale Anyone for brownies Anyone for chocolate chips Anyone for anything that isn't dated How could I have been eliminated? You wanna know how You wanna know how You wanna know why My unfortunate erection is destroying my perfection it is my recollection that everything i once did i did perfectly last year's champ defeated because of marigold coney bear because there's something and not a thing between us i don't blame my brain but i do blame my penis my unfortunate protuberance seems to have its own exuberance. Anyone for M&Ms, delicious and appropriate. Anyone for chewy goobers, expensive. Anyone for buying the shit that I'm selling because my stiffy has ruined my spelling. Erection, erection, my unfortunate Rejection. 
Revolution, which is why I'm selling this PTA. Take one more moment to remind everybody that I do need you to fill out our survey at broadwaybullet.com. The information is incredibly important to me, as I pretty much put together the show by myself, to know that I'm putting the resources towards the right place to make the most enjoyable show for you. We also really could use any donations, which you can go to broadwaybullet.com, and we got a PayPal donation button. There are several expenses to putting this together, and uh, we're pretty much broke. And any help would be very useful, though. We're not a nonprofit. I do want to say that, though. Maybe we will, we'll be in the future looking into that. And as it's kind of a one-man band thing, I am very open to anybody who wants to pitch in, help, offer their suggestions, uh, anything. Just send me an email to broadwaybullet at nextbighit.com. I guarantee I will read it and looking forward to hearing from all of you. There. That was quicker than last week. <laughs> Here for our How to Forge a Career in Directing panel, we've got a great group of people with us. Let me take a moment to introduce everybody. We've got Casey Hushin. She was, among other things, Associate Director on The Drowsy Chaperone. She was Associate on, or is Associate on the upcoming In the Heights musical. And she's done literally hundreds of regional <laughs> theater productions wow. as well. How are you doing? Good, how are you? <laughs> John Simpkins is with us. Uh, he recently directed for Nymph, Go-Go Beach, as well as Things to Run, which I guess keeps coming back and back and back, and we'll be going to Joe's Pub again. And he's a faculty member in the musical theater department at NYU. Exactly. How That's you doing? Good, you? Good. <laughs> Daniel Goldstein is here with us. He has directed, among other things, Godspell at the Paper Mill, Indoor Outdoor at the Daryl Roth, and But I'm a Cheerleader for Nymph. How you doing? Uh, I'm good. Sorry. I, I, all of a sudden I realized you were talking about me. Yeah. Uh, totally. I'm good. Thanks. And Chris Catelli's here with us. He directed the recent off-Broadway musical How to Save the World and Find True Love in 90 Minutes. He did Silence the Musical at the Fringe as director. And in his parallel career as a choreographer, he has also choreographed the new production of High Fidelity which I'm actually going to see right after this panel. Excellent, that's what we like to hear. <laughs> kind of interested in what Olivier's very first directorial position was in theater. I did a play called Attack of the Moral Fuzzies by Nancy Beverly. It was a 10-minute play from the Humana Festival at my <laughs> theater camp. <laughs> it was really good. Um, <laughs> I did a production of The World Goes Round at Fayetteville, North Carolina, where we lost an actor two days before the show, and I actually performed in it as well. <laughs> Self-directed. <laughs> uh, before I moved to the city, I was a high school teacher for a couple of years in Cincinnati, Ohio, and they didn't have a, uh, a, a staff theater director, so I directed middle school and high schoolers in a production of Oliver. Nice. Ah. It was ugly. <laughs> right, and Chris? And, and I, uh, I, I directed a Merry Christmas Charlie Brown here in the city with new uh, new music by Andrew Lippa, and um, <laughs> I was actually that I was actually choreographing, and then they they bumped me up th uh, during the process. 
And then as a parallel intro question, what day jobs did any of you have to hold early on in your career? And what were some of those, especially for people who are interested, that were especially flexible and allowing you to also pursue? Do we have to answer? (laughs) (laughs) I was a waiter for two two weeks. Um, and then I quit and decided I did not want to. It was a really good restaurant, but I won't give them the plug. Um, <laughs> they were mean to me, and they called me stronzo, which if you speak Italian, you'll know that that's not a pleasant word. I won't translate it because... <laughs> and I worked as a temp at the Rainforest Alliance for years, and I would sort of come and go. It was I, I was a temp, and then like I stuck with that one. So, I, you know, between gigs, I would do that. I was a waitress at a very fine dining establishment called (laughs) Jekyll and Hyde's. I can't believe I'm saying this. (laughs) This is going really well so far. I've talked about World Goes Round in Fayetteville and Jekyll and Hyde's. (laughs) That's about Um, it. I was a terrible waiter for several weeks, and I always had some uh, teaching experience in my background. So I then moved into what I would consider to still be my day job, which is is teaching down at NYU. So... Mm -hmm. And, and I would just teach in my spare time. And any dry spells, I would just try to get a class going somewhere. Yeah. Well, let's move into business aspects of forging a career in directing. How much auditioning is there for a job? How do you actually, what you do is kind of ephemeral. You can't demonstrate like an actor does your specific mm-hmm. skills and how you would do this role, this play. So what is involved in putting together your so-called audition for your gigs? I think it's it's usually it, it it work springs from work. It seems. I mean, it, it, mm-hmm. most of most of the opportunities that I've gotten are someone sees a project that I've done and someone might have seen it and said, "Oh, that your sensibility for that would work great with the show." Or I would. The only thing I would add to that, in my experience, is the is also the the people that you come in contact with. I think that if you mm-hmm. if the if you click with people, if you're fortunate enough to get a meeting where you can begin talking about a project that doesn't have a director yet, and you click with them, I think that that's a that's the easiest way that I've found that you can begin to begin to have them trust you and come on board on the team. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. I agree with mm-hmm. what they're saying. I mean, there's if there's anything that is sort of auditiony, it's probably the interview or meeting process. Once mm-hmm. you get past yeah. that, right. you know, I've seen your work on this. I'd love to meet with you. Right. The sitting down and sort of being comfortable to to be yourself and be articulate and for Godspell, I actually had a sort of different meeting. I didn't really know them. They had seen my production of Falsettos, or one of them had, but the Gennaro hadn't seen it. So I went into a pitch meeting with a designer already in town. We had a bunch of ideas of what it would look like, because oh, that's wow. sort of all you really needed for Godspell, so, which was a really different experience. So I knew that if I had the job, so did that designer, yeah. the set designer. How important is having other specialities in theater to getting into the and getting the work? Because I know Chris, you've done a lot of choreography as well. John, you've done a lot of teaching and moved in that way, and you also mm-hmm. do a lot of voice work and mm-hmm. musical directing as well. It moves back to any any time that you can show people in whatever you're doing that that you do good work and that you're articulate and that you're good at something the more the more information they have about you and the more people you meet and the more opportunities will come your way so for me i think directing per se is a very specific thing that that i moved toward from the other disciplines and i'm not really interested in going back to musical directing i'm not very good at it but but coming from that into directing some of the things that i some of the people that i met when musical directing or when teaching are still with me in my life and still provide opportunities. So it's just a wider, it's kind of a wider net in terms of getting a job or getting getting credibility, which is, I think, what what actors look for and what, what designers look for and what directors look for. You know, can, can I trust this person with my money and my job? 
I know, Chris, when I interviewed the writers for How to Save the World, they said they specifically sought you out because they liked your choreography work in Bat Boy. So. <laughs> <laughs> I always say it's it, for a choreographer, it feels like the next logical step if you want to pursue that. Because it, when you when you click with directors and you work with, I've had I've been really fortunate to work with some really wonderful people who I've learned so much from, and and it seems like the next logical step if you want to do that. And because you're storytelling through the movement usually, and and you know getting from A to B, and 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 so if that's so, I mean I and I would definitely like to keep pursuing this. It's nothing but helpful. So, but I still enjoy choreographing, and I just had a meeting actually with Jerry Zaks, and um, about a, a project TBA, and, and he, you know, he said, "Well, I see you're directing now. Is, is, you know, would you want to choreograph something with me?" Or I said, "Definitely. I, I will never not choreograph because I, I want to keep learning. I mean, I know what I'm good at. I know what I feel that I'm good at, and." Uh, you know, I'm not going to run out and direct Shakespeare in the Park right now, but I, I, I think I know what, what I'm good at right now, so I'm always still willing to learn and work with really good people. Daniel, have you done some other things besides just directing in your career? I, I'm also a writer. Um, I don't choreograph. I'm astounded by choreographers. I don't know how they do it. I just had a really great collaboration with Dan Connectus on, on um, Godspell, and it was really fun to spend that week in the room and I would say something very nebulous, and he would sort of translate it into movement, which was really exciting. So I, I'm astounded by choreographers, but I'm also a writer. And I'm also an, an amateur musician. Like, I, I play the ukulele in my spare time. It's one of my favorite things to do. And I, but I actually think that my affinity to music, and that helps me a lot in terms of figuring out what the rhythm of a production is. And hearing, I hear the whole show as sort of a symphony, so you can sort of hear if there are off notes or an instrument is missing. I really like to think of a play or a musical as one giant piece of music, whether or not it's a musical. And I think my writing helps in that. And I used to be an actor, and I still do it with the 52nd Street Project, so I think having all of those disciplines, and I've had to light my own shows and design them, and so having respect for that gives you um, a lot more of the vocabulary to collaborate better with people and just gives you more tools. A director, your job is to basically give opinions on what everyone else is doing. And if you know more about what they're doing, then your opinion is going to be more valid and more worthwhile. And Casey, what are some of the different disciplines you've pursued? I have sort of a career? patchwork of each. I was originally a performer and I got a music degree with John, actually, at NYU. <laughs> uh, we went to school together. And uh, I did a little choreography for a while, but I think, you know, what, what they're saying is very true. All of it informs what you do as a director and makes you have a you know a greater comprehension of what the process is on all sides. So it makes you a better collaborator to sort of understand what the choreographer's position is and what they might need or what the actor feels like when they walk into a room to audition for the first time. And it just kind of enriches all of your decisions. But you know, in regards to the assisting and, and being associate on projects, it's kind of a different animal because yeah. my philosophy is that you know, directing is sort of an apprenticed art. It's the, you know, the best way I've been able to learn over the years is by doing a lot of assisting of some amazing and then some also, you know, difficult and semi-flawed people in different circumstances. And it's just been an incredible, incredible learning process of how you want to be in a room. Like working with somebody like Casey Nicola on Drowsy Chaperone, is, I mean, he's just an inspiration and a joy. And everyone walks away from that show sort of infused with the, with the joy that he brings to the process. And it's great to be around someone like that and watch them work and see how much that affects the process and translates into the actual production. Uh, you know, it's just, that's been really helpful for me, sort of balancing out doing your own work 
with keeping a hand in with people you admire and sort of working alongside with them also has been really valuable. That was my education in it as well. I've never taken a directing class. Yeah. No. Have any of you? No. I mean, awesome. No, this no, is no. such a great room. Forest No grad school people here. But I mean, that's how I did it. I, I went to Williamstown and I got to, you know, I mean, that's, and I assisted a million different people and I assisted Dan Sullivan. So I, there are things that I learned from him. And the, then I spent many years with Nicky Martin, who really start, jump started my career by giving me my first real gig. And then Chris Ashley uh, being the associate on All Shook Up for a year and knowing what it's like to go mm -hmm. through. I mean, you can't know what it's like to direct it's a Broadway show until you've been sitting next to a guy who's responsible for $12 million. Yeah. There is no way to teach directing. You can. I, I totally I, agree. I, agree. I, agree. I completely. I don't know agree how. I don't know how you would. I couldn't teach a class on. I don't know how I would. It would end up being like read this amazing book and go see this amazing play right. and look at this museum thing and write a story and cook a meal like. Yeah. Right. How often do you work out of town? And when I say out of town, I don't necessarily mean touring productions that originate in sure. New York or shows that are already bound for New York, but you're just starting out of town tryouts, but regional theater, Summerstock College, community, whatever. I try, you know, it basically ties into what I was just saying. It's sort of, I use it as an opportunity to kind of sneak away from the New York world and keep practicing on big productions mm -hmm. with a lot of people and, you know, just to keep doing a full production of your own somewhere and getting it up and going through the process, I think is really healthy. But um, I also think, I don't know if you guys agree with this, but what I felt like I sort of learned this year through Drowsy is that I always thought the sort of regional community would lead directly to Broadway <laughs> somehow. And I think the lesson I've learned being more in the New York community the past two years is that they're very different businesses. And while it can be a really good crossover tool, it's not necessarily a direct pathway to right to the New York community. They have very different ways of functioning and ways of operating. So that was kind of eye-opening to me because I always thought the more I worked my way up regionally, it would just, you know, there was a ladder and eventually right. the top right. of that was Broadway. But I don't necessarily know that that ladder works that way. I think it meanders quite a bit well, unless more. Unless you get lucky and have one of those <laughs> regional productions that yeah, someone decides it's really sees. great sure. and then everyone sure. has to go see it and Lemmings follow Lemmings and yeah. everyone goes and decides that it's the best. But, but, you know, I try and do like maybe two or three big productions a year out of New York, somewhere to sort of keep keep going. John? I would say as often as I can. I, I, I am most happy when there are multiple things on the horizon. I love to continue to get better at, at what this is. So when I can get away from my job at NYU, either in the summer or the winter, or if something comes along in between, I go. Pretty much no matter no matter what it is, because I'm gonna I'm gonna learn a lot, I'm gonna meet a lot of people, and I'm gonna get better at this. Chris? Not as much. It's 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 been pretty much in the city so far. And Daniel, I've done a lot of out of town stuff. I mean, I that was sort of the beginning of it. Was working fully committed all over the country, at um, different regional theaters in Canada and all that stuff. And then, but really, at, only for pro I I, I don't want to go away from. I like my apartment a lot, and I don't want to <laughs> go away from it for a project that isn't really exciting to me. You know, I went away for Falsettos in Boston because that was a really thrilling project, and I'm going to go away this this spring for a play in D.C. at the Signature because it's a new play with a playwright that I've worked with before, and, you know, it's a really exciting opportunity. We started the project without a script. She had a commission and a slot. Wow. So all of a sudden, there's a play. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> um, and, uh, and there's nudity in it, which is freaking me out right now. <laughs> but really, it has to be, for me, it has to be a project that's going to that's gonna be worth going away from my apartment for a month and a half and living in some weird company housing. 
<laughs> well, my next question online was, do you need to work and live out of town first? But I'm going to rechange that since obviously Chris has just um, stated that you don't really. So how do you build up and get those first credits? How do you build up a career staying in New York? With having pr like productions running here, people more people that, that are going to put up a show see it here. Like, Alter Boys is, has been helping a lot right now because it's staying in one place and it's here running, and so it's easy to reach out to someone and say, oh, I hear this project is coming up. Mm -hmm. um, like, there are certain things that I'd love people <laughs> to see my work, and I can say, you can go see Alter Boys, and you get a sense of what I do and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And I think that's been helping the most. By, by just having some... some but like nice early on, here. before you even had those things to tell people to go see, or things well, would I, only run for two weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, well, I, a lot well, of, I'm sure everybody's worked on projects that have run for like two sure. weeks in, in theaters, and how do you get those gigs initially to start building up and... Well, it, it, well I also started off doing a lot of um, benefits and things like that. Like I did a bunch of the Actors Fund benefits, I directed their hair benefit, the all-star concert that they did, and I did the choreography on the chess benefit, and. I did a lot of openings for, for all the Broadway care things, and I think it's just getting, just doing whatever you can that's going to get your work out there in any capacity, because especially in, in Manhattan, that's where the most people are going to see it, unless, mm -hmm. you know, they happen to go out of town to see something mm -hmm. specifically that's, that you already invite someone there, but it's just been trying to just knock on all the doors and just get it out wherever you can. I guess this is a little more on the touchy-feely side, but I always <laughs> feel like, you know, a little bit what Chris was saying earlier is if what happens in my experience is that if you invest sort of everything you have, like 150% into each project that comes to you, whether it's a tiny little show, you know, in a festival with $100, or if it's a big Broadway show, all of a sudden that next step sort of comes up to you. And it's, you know, it's a frustrating philosophy because you can't mm -hmm. be completely proactive all the time to go out and seek the mm -hmm. work. A lot of times mm -hmm. it does come to you just from a phone call out of left field. But my experience has been, you know, if you give your all to what you're doing in the moment, the phone rings and something else comes up and then something else comes up. And it's just sort of about always really focusing on what you're doing and doing it as best you can. And then it just seems to lead to other things if you're going in the right way. No, that's a little vague, but it's definitely been, you know, whenever people ask yeah. me that question, it's the only <laughs> true, way I can true. answer yeah. it is to just like, Keep doing what you do and hope yeah. that those phone calls just keep coming. <laughs> and in the beginning, you take those, you take the, you take the things that appear tiny. You you take the things because you like you like the writers or or you like the piece or you have a particular connection to what it is, and you're available for that one week that you're not going to get paid any money to do. But in that one week, you've connected to a piece and you've connected to some writers and you invite some folks that you may or may not know yet to come to that reading, and then all of a sudden this kind of tumble-down effect starts happening. What was or how did you get your first paying directorial gig in the city? Not much in the city really pays unless you're working on Broadway. I mean, even off-Broadway, it's pretty minimal. So what was your first union gig then? In My first union gig was out of town. <laughs> Me too. Me too. I was King and I with Lou Diamond Phillips in North Carolina. <laughs> it was a blast. My first union gig was Falsettos in, in Boston. How to save the world, I guess. I, don't, I guess. But I, I avoided mean, joining the union as long as I could because they take money and I'm sure it's so I didn't... <laughs> Now I'm a proud member, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, my, and it just paid for my knee surgery. So. Totally. Um, I think that I go out of town to make money, and I do work in New York because I want to. But you know, yeah. it's, <laughs> it's a hard. That's a hard question. Well, I, th I think that's actually a very good answer. Yeah. Regional theaters pay lord contracts, and they pay actual money, and then you come into town, and you, everyone thinks you're doing an off-Broadway show, and it's so fancy, and you get paid. It costs you money to do shows. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's incredible how little, and there's a sense more and more actually as they start to think of, figure out new special contracts where producers 
find ways to make it a privilege to be doing an off-Broadway show. And, you, you, you know, and that's regional theaters understand that to get people to come there, they have to pay you. Mm-hmm. But in New York, it's not the same way because the competition is so fierce and because there's so little work. And they also they know that your work is going to be seen, like Chris. Right, mm-hmm. so they don't have to pay you. They can you offer that as, right. a, as a benefit, and then mm-hmm. the next thing you know, you don't have any money. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, it's, it's not... I mean, if you look at a lot of the theaters, even the actors are getting paid, you know. Mm-hmm. You, you, you go see an off-Broadway show where the tickets are $65, $75, and the actors are being paid $300 a week on some weird contract. So there's no money in theater in New York unless you're on Broadway. Or unless it runs for a really long time. And Any, anybody else have anything to add on that before we move on? Or? No, that was good. That was <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's a curse. <laughs> for a different opinion. A right? No, I mean, or, or being an associate director, you can make money at that. Yes. But even those are non-union gigs, which... Yeah, that's what's funny about it. So you do, it's been, like, you make a great living, but then you lose your health insurance. Right, and on All Shook Up, I became the guy that got to do the stuff that stage managers needed to do on, the day, well, on their day off because I wasn't union. And so I could oh, work on my day off because there was no union right. contract. So, like, if copies of new pages need to be made, I was the dude who did it on the day off, which was fine, but it was right. because there was no union. See, so I always it. thought that if a show was a union show, that even if you were or were not a union, that they had to work under union rules. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it depends on the position. Like, yeah, I mean, even though you're a member of SSDC, the director's union, if you're hired into as an associate, that's not a union position. It's not a union oh, position. Okay. So you could be a union member working in that position, but not under not getting any union benefits or credit. But you do get many other benefits. But you do <laughs> lots of other benefits. I mean, it's a really sure. worthwhile apprenticeship. I mean, yeah, it's the best. you're in closer and you're like the liaison between every department. So you're the guy that the producers call, you're the guy that designers call, like everyone who wants to get to the, so you know everything. So you couldn't get a better education. Yeah, it's true. Mm-hmm. You just can't go to the doctor. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Good thing I didn't mess up my knee on that one. In, in various situations, who actually selects the director for the show. It usually, I think, comes more from the producers Pro- than anywhere else. It's been, yeah, actually, yeah. Sometimes Producer. writers maybe bring you into the mix, but it seems like the producers are really the ones who make the final call. Would you agree? Yeah. I would. Uh, not having not having directed at that at that high level, I'm, I don't have that kind of. Uh, but in my experience, the writers. I've come into lots of projects through the writers because I've come in early enough that they're still doing, you know, a reading in their living room or, hey, can you look at this script and sort of help dramaturgically with it? And at that point, then, if and when it grows, a lot of times the writers still can maintain a, a bit of influence in who they advance as a possible director. Ultimately, some producer is going to make that make that call, but a lot of times you can put yourself in good stead with writers. At the college level, the community theater level, most directors are accustomed to making, like, every call. They cast, they pick the team, they pick who lights, designs, pretty much everything's under their shoulders. At some of these various levels, when do you start to lose control over picking your entire team around you, and when do you become part of the team that's picked? I've never had that sense yet of losing the control of things in the way that it's always been very collaborative with the producers, and saying, they might say, hey, we usually work with these three people, they're terrific, and usually they're pretty excellent, and you meet with them, and you have your few people you work with, you kind of offer those, you talk, everyone meets. My experience has been pretty good in that it's been a collaborative process to find the right team and not you're not sort of dictated a certain mm-hmm. team. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the norm or if I've been lucky in that way. For the most part, I've had a thing where, you know, this is your lighting designer because 
there in-house or Yeah, something. or whatever. Sure. But uh, usually if you really don't want to work with someone, no one's going to make you. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I've had plays where there's been a star already attached, so I didn't get to cat, you know, but for the most part. And most of the time, you still retain a decision because you know that going in, and so you can either accept or not, yeah, do, the, right. or not do the job. If it doesn't feel right to you. I, I guess I, when I look at the credits for Broadway things, they say casting by and you see an agency. You, how much how much of the, that working with the casting agency is you're still your decision or the producers? Or how does that all mix in? Because I think there's probably a lot of even actors who are confused about how mm -hmm. that process works. It's been about mixed so far for me. I mean, they definitely they put some wonderful people in front of you. But I don't know. I think I think you there's a lot of talent uh, out there. And... and uh, I don't know. I think you have a certain gauge on on who you like, and and someone like Anika in How to Save the World, like she was already attached. Like for this example, like Anika was already attached to How to Save the World, and I adore her, and she is incredible in the show. But the three, the Greek chorus, there's three people in the Greek chorus. I hand, I just picked them. I said I would like these three people, like Natalie Joy Johnson and Kevin Kirkwood and Stephen Binsky. Mm -hmm. They're all ridiculously mm -hmm. talented, and I was like, I would really love to use this group of people. And mm -hmm. they did the research, and they were completely cool with that. So it's just a mix sometimes. I think you get a good amount of control over those decisions, especially when especially your sort of casting, hierarchy is yeah. working the right way. Right. Everyone will offer their two cents, the casting director, the producer, the musical director, but ultimately, at the end of the day, they'll turn to you and say, okay, where do you want to go with this? And then, you know, you don't always agree, and then you'll go back and forth, but especially... You pick your battles. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you learn, I've learned my lesson in, in time of not compromising, especially on casting. I've made mistakes in that way where I gave in to what the producers wanted, which was wrong which I knew was wrong, but I gave in because it was what the producers wanted. Mm -hmm. and, um, I'll never do that again. <laughs> so for Godspell, in fact, we had, for a 10-person cast, we had 13 days of auditions. Wow. Full <laughs> days, because it wasn't right. And we, had, you know, and then we lost people. Um, Jonathan Groff was supposed to play Jesus, and then a week before we started rehearsals, we dropped out. So we had, you know, I wasn't willing to just go back to the pool that we already had. I knew it wasn't there. So I insisted on more days of auditions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then you end up with a cast like that which was terrific, but mm -hmm. I mean, it, it takes the time, and you have to be insistent yeah. to know that what is out there is, is out there. And the right casting people go a tremendous way Absolutely. in terms of We work a lot on different shows with Bernie Telsey, and they just, like, they're just spectacular. They always have, like, such a great stock of people and such an interesting perspective on everything, and it's so helpful to have someone organizing on what's coming in the room in front of you and sort of saving you all those steps of, you know, The difference between a good casting director and a bad one is... Or not yeah. a good and bad, that's unfair to say, but someone who shares your perspective on what the play or the musical is about is it's invaluable. Or even on how the casting process works. I mean, I think a lot of times you have to decide going in who's got a seat at the table, like who's got a seat in that decision-making so that you can... I always kind of think that whoever's got a seat at the table, be it a producer, a director, choreographer, musical director, whoever, everybody's got veto power. I, that's what I kind of think. I think that, that if we, at the end of the day, if we can't all agree on something, we got to keep looking. And so if a producer says, I can't have that, then I'll respect that, and, and I would like him or her to respect me saying the same thing. Now, has Drowsy Chaperone gone through any cast replacements yet? Um, replacements here and there of, like, Edward Hibbard left to do curtains for a little while, and <clears> his <throat> comeback, we had a temporary replacement, but uh, not yet in terms of a full 
replacement for a cast member. As a brief aside, does anybody know how the replacement scenario kind of works? As directors in the project still have any say at that point, or are they oh, like gone absolutely. for the project? Yeah, absolutely. Even, even with replacements down the line, yeah, you guys still... I think it's the key to having something run a long time mm -hmm. is being responsible about all those decisions and oh, definitely. You know, keeping an eye on it, making And still being involved. <laughs> yeah. And having a good associate. I mean, I think a lot of having someone like you on, on board to help huh. when Casey's doing something else, who can really actually Yeah, there's keep a team it. of people who can, you know, there's a, our stage yeah. manager's really involved, you know, everyone's sort of involved in sort of trying to maintain the integrity I, of it. You know, I think it's one of the reasons, I mean, I, I worked on Mamma Mia for two years as the, the resident director on, on one of the tours, and that tour is now closed, but I, I think it was one of the incredible things about that company is that they really have a respect for the associate director. They, you know, especially because Philida is in London, but they really put everything on you to maintain the integrity of the show and not leave it up to stage management, who may or may not have that sensibility of right. directing it properly. Some, some stage managers might have that, but I think a lot of general managers uh, see the associate director as an unnecessary expense, and I think it's to their detriment. Yeah, I agree. And to kind of wrap up the business portion of the, the question panel here, um, I can understand if nobody here wants to name specific names on this next question, <laughs> but uh, how often have you taken a show solely for the credit or the paycheck and you didn't feel that great about the show itself? I'd say never so uh, yeah. far. I'd say never also. Never. It, 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 there's not enough money. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's, it's, I mean, if there's going to be enough money and it's really bad, then it's not going to actually be... Per, per, but there's not enough money to really yourself out that badly. <laughs> I sort of was wrestling with one recently that would have been the first time of doing this. It's not totally resolved yet, but it's just like you got to trust your gut and you know when yes, you're going to be yes. unhappy. Life is too short to, you know, be working with a team you don't, you know, you don't gel yep. with or in a project you're not passionate about. It's just, it's too good when it works the other way to, to sort of go, you know, do a project you, you don't care about. Because it, it won't be good. And ultimately you're not going to do good work on it. Yeah. If you, if there's nothing that's driving you into it, like I don't think that my work is going to be great unless I connect with the piece. So I don't I don't think I should do myself the disservice or whoever's going <laughs> to have to work with me on a project that I don't really love. Chris? Actually I actually did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad one has one friend the flip side. It's nice to have the flip side. Uh, <laughs> Which I am actually not doing now. I, I ended up leaving in mid-process because I my gut was right. I, I was asked <laughs> to direct uh, the 2007 Ringling Brothers Circus, and it was <laughs> quite appealing <laughs> um, cash flow, and I accepted. And then partway through the process, I I I couldn't I couldn't uh, continue. That's all I'll say. Do you regret that decision? Or you, have you had an affair with a lion. <laughs> 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 the working environment just got too ugly. This is going to get out. This is going to get out. So. Sometimes I wish they would come. I mean, <laughs> right. It's honestly, I wish there were some. I, I would totally do it. I just haven't. Had it. I'm not opposed to being a whore. I'm not. I'm not. There's not. You have to pay your mortgage. Yeah. I mean, it happens. Yeah, but, like, right. you know. I, look, if you have a job, <laughs> you're a like, lot if of you money, have a bad job out there, I will do. <laughs> but, it's, but it's true, though. It is tricky when when you see that dangled in front of you and sure. you you jump, but then partway through, you're like, wow, this really, th this isn't right. And and do I want to do I want to continue working like this for another eight months or another? It's a lot of checks and balances, and and 
and that was a huge lesson that I've learned this year to just no matter what it is just to just to go with the gut and pick the project because you truly want mm -hmm. to be a part of that mm -hmm. project mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that and, and that's an invaluable invaluable lesson I learned this year Okay, well, we're going to continue this discussion here today, and we'll play the next half of this discussion next week on the program, where we'll talk a little bit more about some of the creative decisions. <laughs> we'll be back with our last episode of the season, Volume 21, next week with Part 2 of this director's panel, as well as interviews with Bindlestiff, Tan O'Brien, and more. We'll be returning for our next season on February 8th, so keep an eye out. Until next week, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and thanks for hopping on the Broadway Bullet. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.